Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. There's a lot more of a technical aspect that goes on in the back room with the coaches where they're trying to outplay each other, which is really fun. Mesdames et messieurs. The greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Alison Brown. Alison, hello. How are you today? I am doing well. I am enjoying my new finds from our trip to Olympin. I am too. Oh my gosh. What a weekend that was. So we were in Boston for the Olympin Collector Show. And you remember all of our favorite people from Olympin, uh, Don Bigsby and Pam Litz and Ed and Mark and Bob and Scott and all these people, they were all there. John Becker was there, so we got to see him again too. And they're peddling their wares and they've got some stuff. We, we just scored a lot of things. So did. What, did, what did you get? So my favorite things were from Linda and Bob each, I bought a Roots hat from 2002, the famous- The famous beret. Berets. And so now I have one and I texted my daughter while we were there and I said, I can get another one for you. And she was so excited. So I will be posting pictures of the two of us wearing our matching Oh, awesome. Hats. I was actually surprised at how excited she was because she wasn't born yet. Right. When those Olympics were, right? I couldn't go to Salt Lake City because I was pregnant and sick. And then she also is going to match mom. Yeah. But I think she liked that she had something that I was excited about. That's very so that nice. Was, that was fun. And then I got a couple of just sort of weird, randomy like tins and pens, and I'm not even sure what I'm going to do with it. And then glasses. I got beer glasses. Yeah, they look nice. They look very nice, and they did make it home safely because they're glass. I very wasn't good. sure. I did nothing to wrap them up in. So I think I'm going to use them actually as vases. Oh, okay. Because they're the right height, so I'm going to put some flowers in them and have them on my desk, and it'll make me feel Canadian and Olympic at the same time. Oh, because they, they are... The ma- yeah, they have a maple leaf on them. Okay. I'm not sure what if they're from the Canadian Olympic Committee or if they're from a particular games. It doesn't say. Okay. So I'll have to do a little research. All right. You, however, I'm surprised oh, you man. made it back on the plane. I am, too, because they had a silent auction, and I am a sucker for paper, which is maybe it's a good thing or a bad thing that paper use is declining across the whole Olympic sphere. But I came home with the official report from Stockholm 1912. That's a big book that has to get some refurbishing done to. I got the Lillehammer bid book from when they bid in 1992, which looked very cool. Got some other Lillehammer programs and things but also i got the protocol the final protocol from the figure skating competition in 1994 which is that's going to be fun to read because it was such a controversial competition that that year got a book on the design of barcelona 1992 and i love kobe so there's a lot of that in there and, and then, you're a sucker for design i am a sucker for design <laughs> 
And one of the other things I got that is cool is the packet from the closing ceremonies at Salt Lake City 2002. So when you go to the closing ceremonies, you had something on your chair that was like a folio and it had things in it that you had to participate along with the game. So there was a poncho and a flashlight and some foam balls that are like uh, um, supposed to be like snowflakes or something. But I guess the weather was so bad that evening that nobody used them for anything they just kept it so so it's pretty much done well they used the poncho and the seat cushion <laughs> if they weren't the already things, wearing one. yeah i didn't remember that the weather was bad i'll have to go back yeah and, i know and, look. and then i'd gotten a, a book that i traded for some note cards from 1984 that was really cool and i bought some pins for tokyo to trade and some postcards and things like that so brought a lot home <laughs> So that one checked bag in the plane may have oh, been a problem. Oh, thank goodness we had that. Thank goodness we had that and we had totes. So, <laughs> But what, the other thing that was cool was we met a lovely woman named Kathy who's going to be on the show in a few weeks. Kathy was the team doctor for the women's ice hockey team at Torino. So we spent a lovely time talking with her about that and we're, we're excited to share that with you in a few weeks. She was a lot of fun, had a lot of stories that we did not expect. Yeah, exactly. Let's just put it that way. Exactly. So we will have tons of pictures that will be on our Twitter and Insta feeds over the next several days or weeks. So you'll check out Olim Fever on either of those platforms and see what we got. And if you want to make a trade, I don't know. There might We're be some trading. I can't trade the hats, though. No, that's true. That's I can't. True. <laughs> Unless you take my daughter, too. <laughs> well, you take two Tokyo pins. <laughs> Maybe three. Depends on how good they are. All right. Because we are at the start of the World Weightlifting Championships, we wanted to talk about that sport this week. So our guest today is the voice of the people, Seb Ostrowitz. Seb is the host of the weekly podcast, Weightlifting House, and he writes at its accompanying website, weightliftinghouse.com. We talked with him back on August 12th about how the sport works. Take a listen. Seb, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a, it's always fun to be on the other side of the, uh, well, not the side of the microphone, but other side of the conversation. So let's talk about a weightlifting competition for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. First off, it is a, a weight-based sport. Mm -hmm. So that means the athletes have to be in certain weight classes. And right, yeah. they're different for the international weightlifting has its own categories, and then the Olympics have their own categories. that are They're similar, yeah. but they're, they're fewer for the Olympics. Why is that? Yeah. Well, everything got reshuffled uh, about a year ago. They got rid of all of the previous weight classes, and they put in 10 new separate weight categories for men and 10 new separate weight categories for women. The reason they did that was just because they felt like drugs had infiltrated the sport too much. And so they thought, okay, we're gonna increase the amount of testing we do, wipe all the records, start afresh. And that's why we currently have these 10 categories. But for the Olympics, just because essentially it's a time can, well, the Olympics really is time constrained. Like we can't take up an entire seven days at the Olympics. So basically just because the IOC can't give us enough broadcasting time, we just cut back two categories from the men and two categories from the women. Uh, sorry, three from the men and three from the women. So it's seven and seven rather than 10 and 10. Other than that, there's literally no reason. There's no clever reason. It's it's purely broadcasting, just not having enough time to get in all the categories. Yeah. So interesting. So how does that then affect the athletes who may need to make the decision to go up or down uh, a class? It's tough because instead of them just writing seven new categories, they've literally just removed them. So you have, instead of a five kilo gap, suddenly you've got like a, an 11 kilo gap or something. So, for example, the men's, there's now a gap from 81 all the way up to 96 kilos, whereas normally there'd be, so there's from 81 to 96, normally there'd be an 89 in the middle, but they remove that. So now if you're, a, you know, an 89 kilo guy, it's not easy to cut down eight kilos and it's, it's not easy to gain seven kilos, especially when you're going against people who have been competing in the correct weight classes for the four years previously. So it's it's tough on the athletes and people are kind of migrating away from those classes that aren't going to be there. They're already moving away from them just so they can get enough time training at the correct body weight. So um, we've got the world championships in four weeks and those weight classes that won't be there at the Olympics will be poor. Like the standard won't be very high just because everybody's leaving them. 
But this is the first time this has ever happened for weightlifting at the Olympics. We've, ne we've never had this disappearance of weight classes, so this is new to our sport. We don't exactly know how it's going to turn out, but well, I guess this time next year we'll probably have a better feel for how it all went. But it's still a, uh, yeah, we'll see. How does that work for cla for qualifying then? If you've been competing mm. in a weight class that doesn't exist at the Olympics, right? Yeah, so you have to do the, the whole qualification system now is is really gone crazy. It used to be that you could basically just do one competition, and then your country would decide who would go. And now you have to compete six times within an eighteen month period, broken up into three six month windows, which is all a bit complicated. But essentially, as long as you compete twice in the weight class that you want to compete in, in for the Olympics, you can then compete in any other weight classes. So if I generally weighed 89 kilos, but I wanted to compete in the 96 kilo class at the Olympics, I just make sure that I weighed a little bit heavy two of the six times just to show the International Olympic Committee or the International Weightlifting Federation that I can weigh the correct amount to be in that weight class come the Olympics, and then they'll let you in. But the other four you can do in the one that, you, that your body weight naturally sits in. So when it's you're confusing. Yeah, I was going to say, when you look at a weight class, is that mm. number the minimum starting point of it's a the range? Maximum. The maximum. So they can be a maximum yeah, yeah. of 96 kilos, but they can be yeah. a minimum of 82 kilos, correct? Yeah, so, okay. so the one at the Olympics is 81 up to 96. So if you weigh 81.1, you're mm -hmm. a 96. If you weigh 81, you're an 81. And, you, you know, you can weigh anything between 81.1 and 96 and you'll be a 96 kilo lifter. So it's, it's really it's, it's more beneficial to you if you can weigh as much as you can in that weight class, which is why you have people training, you know, four or five kilos heavier than they compete. And then they do a little bit of a water cut, you know, dial back on the foods maybe a week before competition, cut down, weigh in, make sure they've just snuck under. Then they eat a Subway and drink Gatorade, gain the four kilos again. So when they actually go on the stage, they don't weigh less than the limit they're, they're weighing heavy every time they go onto the competition stage they've just got to make sure that for that 30 seconds that they get weighed in two hours before the competition they weigh under the weight class okay so this is a breeding ground for eating disorders yeah yeah it probably could be yeah yeah it's tricky but it's funny because it it is something that we so i i had a, a woman on the podcast last week called Alyssa ritchie who's the american 49 kilo lifter and she is an incredible weightlifter, but 49 kilos is very small. And even for her, she has an incredibly hard time trying to cut down to that weight. So she weighs naturally, well, not naturally, but she, she lets herself train at about 54 kilos in body weight. And she's got this five kilos to cut, which is when you're at that weight, I mean, that's 10% of your body weight. You know, that's like me, you know, gaining 10 kilos basically, and then cu or cutting 10 kilos. Like it's not easy. Um, and she was telling us about just how difficult that is and, she said she's in a sauna, she's claustrophobic, she's crying. She eats gummy bears, or she puts, chews gummy bears and then spits into a cup just to get rid of as much moisture as she can. Just sauna, comes out, chews gummy bears, spits, spits. Okay, and it's completely, she said it's completely grueling. And there, there are girls, especially the lighter weight girls who, who end up quitting or get burnt out because of this weight-based weight system. But, but it seems like it's the only way, but they, they, they should do a... They should do more to maybe regulate how people lose weight, perhaps. But yeah, it's, it's, it's multiple, tough on people. Yeah, could you have multiple weigh-ins? Yeah. So that you could like that. not possibly compete at a weight mm -hmm. that is not close to what your normal weight right, yeah. is. Yeah. Right, because okay. then if you're like you weigh in and it's half an hour before competition and then you mm -hmm. shove a bunch of food in your face to get some energy, mm -hmm. like how does that affect you when you're competing so they generally want to eat the food because for the two days before they've been eating less they've been consuming you know no salt basically because salt if you eat salt you retain water so mm -hmm. they've get rid of all of the salt in their diet so they want to eat it's just more the the thing that's tough is you've got to got to ask yourself would it be better to always weigh 49 kilos and feel great on the day or would it be better to be uh, a slightly ill feeling 54 kilo person and most people decide it's better to feel like a slightly ill 54 kilo person just because you're a bigger person so you can do better so it's yeah it's, it's very tough I, I've never I've never competed at a level where I've had to do ridiculous crazy cuts 
and I've always kind of weighed in between weight classes. So for me, I've normally been able to go to competition and the days before I'm just eating whatever I want. It's quite a nice position to be in. But for people who are who are cutting, and now because they have to do it six times, you know, in the 18 months before, that, that's a lot of times to be doing these kinds of cuts. It's very stressful on the body. And like you said, I, I guess it could be a breeding ground for, you know, food issues. Yeah. How much do you see in the results for somebody who is 49 kilos versus somebody who is 54 kilos or 54.9 kilos Mm -hmm. in in a competition Um, so we have two lifts we have the snatch and the clean and jerk Mm -hmm. the clean and jerk world records might be about nine kilos apart eight nine kilos apart yeah so a, a decent amount i mean this 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 woman that i was speaking to she said as well that for her if she because she's been doing this for so long, she she calculates everything that she's doing, and she knows that she can only perform, say, 500 reps in a snatch in a year if she weighs, or 1,000 in a year if she weighs 49 kilos. But if she weighs 54, she feels so much better and so much stronger and has so much more energy that she can compete 2,000 reps in a year. So she can do more training to get better if she weighs more. It just means that then the cut at the end is, is horrible. But there's there's a significant increase in what you left when you gain the weight. Yeah. Wow. Well, now that's my excuse for eating a cannoli. I can go lift. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. And then once you get to the super heavyweight class, and it's just you're not bound by anything anymore. There's just a minimum. So once you're above for the men 109, uh, and for the women 87 kilos. Once you're above that, you can then be, you know, as big as you want. So you have this like weird thing where. All the men and women are just under, just under, just under, and then suddenly there's like a 50 kilo gap, and then all the men and women who are in the super heavyweight class weigh some of the. I mean, some of the top guys like 170 kilos. They're pretty big people. Yeah. Wow. Which for the Americans is like 380 pounds, something like that. Yeah. Holy cow! And just being a bigger <laughs> mass of a person helps you lift more weight. Yeah, that's it. Okay. I mean, their leverages play a huge role. I mean, generally, okay. the, the mock-up of a good-looking weightlifter is to have a long spine and short femurs and short arms, which is not... Like, it's funny because, like, for me, obviously, like, I walk around and I see someone with a long spine and short legs, and I just immediately look at them and I think, wow, you'd be great at weightlifting. Whereas I know that the generally, you know, men and women want to have long legs and, you know, um, but, but it's completely the other way for weightlifting. So leverage plays a role, but generally... Mass moves mass, so the more it's not any old mass, but muscle mass moves mass. So the more muscle mass your body holds, the more weight you can lift. Yeah. So why is it that the long spine, short femur, short arms plays in? So much of weightlifting is to do with how much you can squat. It just tends to be that people who have particularly long femurs, so the thigh bone, when you get into a squat position, because that is it's so long and it, this, this gets kind of more technical but the moment becomes so much greater when you've got a long femur that you have to produce a lot more force to be able to lift something vertically if you have a really short femur you can stay way more upright with your torso squat down and squat up not produce as much force necessarily and still make it so pulling on the barbell from the floor is a little bit tougher but you can stand things up much easier once you catch them in this position on your shoulders so when you see the top guys and the top women in any weight class they're abnormal in their proportions compared to your everyday man and woman oh that's so interesting i see allison your wheels are turning this might be your sport i am i'm like okay i'm gonna go measure my femurs (laughs) but there's no way i can i can cut down to 49 kilo i mean let's just forget that that's not that well there are nine other weight classes don't let that put you off so let's talk about the two lifts within a weightlifting competition. So mm-hmm. the first one is, are they always in the same order? Yeah, always. Okay. Yeah. So it's always the snatch first and the clean and jerk yeah. second. Okay. Yeah. So weightlifting competition, you, you get to the venue mm-hmm. like three hours before or so? Because you, yeah, have to... you get in three hours before, so you weigh in two hours before. Okay. And then you have basically this two-hour window where you, you eat something, you roll around on the floor, stretch about. You're not rolling around for the sake of rolling around. You're rolling around because you're stretching. Um, <laughs> that would be a different sport altogether. That would be a different sport. And then they start lifting. And so, yeah, you've got the snatch portion and then a 10-minute interval and then the clean and jerk portion. Uh, and you have three attempts in the snatch, three attempts in the clean and jerk. In weightlifting, the bar only increases in weight. So when you want to make a lift, you then jump in. 
And what makes that interesting is you can kind of select a weight that you want to lift and then someone else says, okay, I'll match you. And then suddenly you can blast them, take out your attempt and move it up and force them to have to take an attempt. So it's a little bit more interesting because it's not always the same order anytime. I mean, you could very easily follow yourself for all three attempts if everybody wants to be really mean and, and pull their attempts out. There's a lot more of a technical aspect that goes on in the back room with the coaches where they're trying to outplay each other, which is really fun. But yeah, I mean, it's three attempts in the snatch, then a break, then three in the clean and jerk. And for the Olympics, all it comes down to is if you add the two best numbers together from each lift, whoever gets the highest number at the end wins. Okay, wait, wait, because I'm confused. Okay. When you say three attempts, so it's three attempts over the whole portion yeah. of the clean and jerk or the, yeah. the snatch. So Not you're going to wait to take attempts until the weight goes up. Because you don't yeah. want to lose your attempts and then everybody passes you. Yeah, exactly. So you, you know, you might say, okay, I'm going to clean and jerk 200 kilos on my first attempt. And the first person might have done 180 kilos. And then there are a few more lifts at 185, 193, 98, gets to 200, you do your lift. And then you can kind of see because everybody has three attempts, you know, okay, this person's already had their three attempts. This person's got two more. This person's only got one more. This guy over there hasn't taken any because he's going to win. And so you kind of start playing around with the other people and thinking, okay, they're going to do 205, so I'm going to do 206. And then that person who said they were going to do 205 suddenly says, actually, that was a joke. I wanted you to say 206. Now I'm going to do 207 instead. And so there's a lot of like to and fro and going on and people trying to – it's called taking each other's time. So you get given a certain amount of time. And if you're very careful with how you play your numbers, you can get rid of someone's allotted time to make a lift. So it's a little bit tactical, but but basically in, in its most simple form, you have three snatches, only one attempt at, you know, you go onto the platform. If you miss it, you walk off. You don't get to try it three times then. You just walk on, attempt it. If you make it, you walk off. If you miss it, you walk off. And then you decide what your next attempt is going to be. So if you miss a weight, you mm -hmm. don't have to attempt that same weight again. You could wait. You don't wait. have to. Okay. You don't have to, but you probably should. And if you don't, then that's when it gets dangerous. If the weight suddenly starts going up and you've missed your first attempt at 180 and now we're at 185, the likelihood that you're going to make that goes and then you get a bit stressed and then the crowd's going loud and then you miss 85, then it's all or nothing on the 190 kilos and, and that's a bad place to be. So it's, it's always worth if you miss that first attempt, walk off stage, say that you want to do it again, you get given two minutes, which is double the amount of time that you would normally get because you've missed a lift. Then you take the two minutes rest, walk back on, and hit it. So, the, yeah, there is a lot of gameplay in <laughs> the is, background yeah. that yeah, you don't tough. necessarily see because people no. are just going back and forth to that, that table, right? Right. Yeah, we, I, I mean, I really think for, for weightlifting to grow, well, there are lots of things it can do, but one of them would be find a way to make the backroom action visible for the spectators or for the viewers at home. If we could see, you know, if there was a commentator that just said, and then the coach came in and he took out the number and they put it up there and now this other lift has to do this and they didn't want to. Like That could make it way more interesting than just seeing the front end of the stage where the lifters come out and make the lifts because there's so much more going on. It's very tactical. Yeah, you, wow. see, you see countries screw over other countries sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And then you, <laughs> whenever you see a, a, a lifter running out onto the stage, it was because they were still warming up and then they thought they were six attempts out like there were six people going to go first and all of those six took their attempts away and moved them up five kilos. And then suddenly this person's got to sprint onto the platform and, and make the lift. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it can be pretty savage sometimes when you see that happen. Wow. So what do you do? You make your lift, you go in the back mm. and what do you do in between your lifts while your coach is determining what weight mm -hmm. you're going to lift next? So that, that again, that depends. I mean, if, if you are the strongest or the lightest by far, you know that there's nobody, nobody's going to take a lift in between your attempts. If I'm the worst by a long way, which if I went to the Olympics, I would be. So if I go to the Olympics in a year's time, no one's going to be taking attempts in between mine because they're all going to open 50 kilos above me. So I know basically I've got two minutes in between each of my attempts. So I, all I'm going to do in that situation is sit down and rest. But when you start having a load of people who are all lifting, you know, there might be 30 attempts within a 15 kilo 
you know, area, people taking the same attempts, people not. And so sometimes you have to wait, you know, maybe up to 15 minutes between an attempt, at which point you can't really sit and do nothing. You have to, your coach has to tell you exactly how many minutes they think you have, even though it's going to change constantly as people make lifts, miss lifts, change lifts. But it might be that you drop the weight on the barbell that you have that you're warming up on and do a few lifts at 80% of what you were going to do. Or you keep the weight of what you you want to do and instead of going under it, you just pull the bar to your hips and then drop it. I mean, that's something that you kind of learn as an athlete. Like, what is it that I prefer? Do I want to sit and rest or want to hit some light reps or do I want to pull on a heavy weight? It's up to you, really. What's the technical differences between the snatch and the clean and jerk? So in terms of what they look like for people who maybe don't even know what they are, the, the snatch is you basically get the bar from the ground to overhead in one movement. So you put your hands out really wide on the barbell, like right to the ends of the barbell and you grab it on the floor, you pull it, and you throw it over your head in one position, you just catch it up here. The clean and jerk is two movements, but the goal is the same, it's to get the barbell from the ground to above your head. So in the clean, you pull it, you catch it on your shoulders, and then the jerk portion, you dip and you throw it above your head. So you can lift more in the clean and jerk just because you get to break the movement down into two, into two pieces. So generally, you can snatch about 80% of what you can clean and jerk. The snatch is more technically demanding. A lot of it is to do with mobility, balance, speed, timing. It's, it's much more of a skill. It's, it's much more like, you know, shooting a basketball is a skill. Like it's just repetition, repetition of snatching to become a master of that movement. The clean and jerk is a little bit, I mean, it's still very technical, but it's a lot more strength dependent. So sometimes you see there are weightlifters who are a clean and jerk specialist or a snatch specialist. And it might be that just, they're very, they're very fast, mobile, and athletic, so they excel in the snatch. Or they're just big, massive people who are so strong, they just rip the bar to their shoulders and get it overhead, and they excel in the clean and jerk. But both of them require huge amounts of speed and, and mobility. I mean, it's, it's, it's other than gymnastics, I think the, the weightlifters are probably the most mobile athletes in the Olympics, which always surprises people. But when you see... The, the men and women do things that they do. It's, it's completely mind-blowing how much mobility and flexibility they have. What is a good lift? Because, you know, sometimes mm. you see weightlifters, they get it over their head and they stand up, but they're walking around or staggering. Yeah. So what, when is a lift done? I mean, the, the real sense of the rules is the lift is only done when the judges tell you that you can put it down. But to, and then when they tell you to put it down, then they, there are three judges and they vote. If it's a good lift in their mind, they give you a white light. If it's a bad lift, they give you a red. So you just have to get two whites. You can get two whites and one red, and then you the lift counts by majority decision. If you get three whites or two whites, it literally doesn't matter. You just got the majority, so you it counts the lift. The reasons why it wouldn't count, uh, there are a few things. One of them would be what's called a press out. So you have to catch the bar with a completely extended elbow. So your arm is completely straight and you catch the bar. If your elbow bends and presses a little bit or it looks like you have what we call soft elbows, then it's a no lift. So you have to catch it with completely straight arms in the snatch and in the jerk. If you don't have the bar overhead under control, so if you're still walking around the platform and you haven't been able to make everything motionless, that counts as a no lift. If you don't bring your feet together sort of in line, so if one is slightly in front of the other, you've got a staggered stance, that doesn't count. And also, if your elbow touches your knee on the clean, which happens to some people who don't have great ankle mobility, that doesn't count. There are a few really sort of strange, quirky things. One of them is if you pull the bar off the floor, this is one that most people don't know because you never see it, but if you pull the bar off the floor and it doesn't pass the knees, you can put it back down and go again. Quite why you would do that, nobody knows, and nobody would do that, but you can. But if the bar comes up and just passes the knees, you can no longer bring the bar back down. But because no one would ever pick it up and put it back down before they did the lift, you never see that happening in competition anyway. But that's one of those sort of weird secret hidden laws that weightlifting has for no real reason. Flexibility and mobility let's talk about that because <laughs> I always see, especially mm-hmm. in the, the super heavyweight category, you right, see yeah. very big people who don't yeah. in like on the street, don't look like athletes, <laughs> but no. like here they're amazing. Like what flexibility, what mobility, like what, I don't know. Talk about that. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, 
Firstly, before mobility, the 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 issue, uh, the reason why I think people always think that weightlifters are huge and often really overweight is because it's the people who lift the most that make the headlines. And so when it says strongest woman in the world or strongest man in the world, they pick the super heavyweight champion who weighs 170 kilos and doesn't really look like the most healthy person in the world. They're just massive. But in all the other weight class, of which is you know 90% of the sport the weightlifters are incredibly lean. Like they have very little fat mass. They're all muscle really because you want to have as much muscle mass below your weight cap, below the, the top of the weight category as you can. So I think that's kind of why people have this idea that weightlifters are all big and, you know. Um, but so the reason we have to have good mobility and it's amazing when you see some of the people and you look at them and then they, they suddenly, they do the splits, you know, they do the horizontal splits, forward, backwards. They can do the most, I mean, Something that is very difficult to do, and I, 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 you can maybe try, maybe not right now, but try it at some point, is to sit in a squat position and try and get your butt to touch the ground. Now, that is like, you'll probably sit there and you'll think, okay, well, this is, I must be doing this wrong. This isn't possible. No, there's no way you could do that. But that's what these guys are able to do. Their, their hip and ankle mobility and back mobility is incredible. And the real reason is they kind of say it as the lowest person wins. And that's not, it's not really as simple as that. You've got to be strong, you've got to be fast, but every inch that you can get lower into a squat means another couple of kilos that you can put on the bar. Because we get to the point in the snatch and the clean and jerk where you're only pulling the barbell to your belly button. You're just moving really fast to get under it, catch it in a really low squat, and then stand it up. And obviously the heavier the barbell, the lower you can pull it. So every inch that you can get lower under that barbell and lower into a deep squat, the more weight you can put on the barbell. You just have to then be strong enough to stand it up. So pe people are catching these bars really low. That's actually another no lift. If you if your butt touches the ground in a clean or a snatch, it's a no lift. That happened at the last Olympics. That's it's really cool when you see that. But if anybody listening can do a squat and can touch their butt to the floor and doesn't know about weightlifting, please get in touch because I'd love to turn you into <laughs> an Olympic champion. Okay, if you've got that much flexibility in a joint and you're lifting mm -hmm. that much weight, yeah, that to me. Says, sounds like injury yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> that sounds that. like a really bad injury waiting to happen uh -huh. what kind of injuries are very typical in weightlifting but the, the funny thing is when you look per like thousand people who do weightlifting you get far fewer injuries in weightlifting than you do in field sports weightlifting surprisingly you don't get the kind of snapped elbow even though you might think when you catch a bar over there you might snap an elbow or torn tendon in the knee you know acl pcl mcl they, they all stay intact weightlifting injuries actually just tend to be overuse injuries so in the same way that people get tennis elbow just from you know repetition of doing something it tends to be that you get really bad tendonitis or something like that basically it's an overuse thing so wrist starts to hurt just from always catching the bow overhead and it just becomes painful or your elbow feels sore or your knee yeah you get some tendonitis in the knees and the knees are hurting it tends to be more like that, that you just wake up and you feel really beaten up. It's very rare that, you know, you would, you'd break, because it's not a contact sport, you know, it's, you're not getting hit like in football and you're not doing sudden changes in direction where, you know, your foot gets stuck in the ground and then your ankle turns or something. So it's contrary to kind of what you might think, it's, it's relatively injury free. And if you do get hurt, normally that's because you didn't notice the warning signs of feeling tired and fatigued and maybe you shouldn't do this you just figured i'm gonna do it anyway and then and then gradually you start getting hurt that way but that's it really so okay so why do weightlifters then wrap up their knees like crazy and why do they wear the big belt so that's not an injury prevention thing so much as there are certain bits of equipment that you can use to help you lift more weight oh, so okay. it's powerlifting which is a slightly well it's a very different sport but it's the other one that people tend to have heard of there are you know wrist straps and elbow wraps and, and knee sleeves and different types of belts of all different thicknesses which allow you to lift more the thicker all of these things are but in weightlifting the general rule is you're allowed a belt but there's only a, a certain level of thickness that you can have and that just helps you create what's called intra-abdominal pressure so basically you can just build a tremendous amount of pressure in your core just to make sure that you're from basically hips to shoulders, there's no movement at all. So all of the force that you push through and with your legs transfers straight up and out of your shoulders into the barbell. Helps you stand up with cleans better. So when you squat, you can squat more with a belt. And then the wraps around your knees, it's the same thing. It just creates so much pressure that, you know, if you wrap your knees really, really tightly, 
it gets hard to even just get into a squat without any weight. Like it almost feels like you need something on you to push you down into the bottom of a squat. So it helps you to stand up a little bit quicker. And you need to be able to move around because mobility is so crucial. But the the wraps and the and the belts just help you stand up with weights a little bit better. And then on top of that, the only other thing that weightlifters tend to use is we use wrist straps. So something that we put around our wrist, then we thread it under the barbell, and we basically tighten our hands onto the bar so that we're attached to the barbell. And we have a way of doing it where you have this quick release. So as soon as you let go like that, it all unravels so you don't get you know stuck to the bar when you drop it and hurt yourself. But that's it, yeah. Knee wraps, a belt, and then the, the wrist straps. But the wrist straps aren't allowed in competition. It's just for training, just so your hands don't get too sore. Or, you know, you tear your hands up quite quite easily with bars. The, the knurling on them is quite sharp. So, yeah, anything to protect the hands. So that is why also you have the weightlifting house thumb tape? That's it, yes. Okay. Yeah, so the thumb tape. So with weightlifting, there's this... We, we, we do a thing called the hook grip, where you don't grip a bar like... You know, when you're grabbing a shopping, you wrap your fingers under the shopping, then you put your thumb over the fingers. It's like how you would pu- how you would punch someone. Not that you would ever need to punch anyone, but if you were, that's how you'd punch. It's just a normal grip. <laughs> In weightlifting, we put our thumb under our fingers, which is definitely not how you'd want to punch someone because you would break your thumb by doing that. So this is like, this is a real game changer. When By doing that, you then get this bit of friction between your thumb and your fingers, which especially when you chalk it up, it just the friction is so great and the more weight you put in there the greater the friction is that you can really accelerate and pull a barbell without your hand opening and you drop the bar so if you try and do you know the snatch and clean and jug with a normal grip if you're a talented weightlifter you'll only be able to lift maybe 85 percent of your best as soon as you do a hook grip you can lift significantly more so So that's why we hook grip is the barbell sitting on top of your thumb then on top of the thumb so it crushes the thumb so Every beginner says, this isn't for me. Maybe it works for everybody else, but it really hurts and it just doesn't help me. And, and I tell them, like, everyone has said that to me. I, I've never coached a weightlifter who hasn't initially said that. Everyone says it hurts too much, but you, ha- you just have to, I mean, it's just like a, it's a non-negotiable. You have to hook grip if you want to be good at weightlifting. And after a while, you know, you, you get calluses in all the right places. You know, I get no pain really, but... That's another reason. So yeah, the, the weightlifting house thumb tape that I sell, that's just weightlifters like to put tape on their thumbs because as well as the barbell pressing down, it's also got this horrible sharp knurling on it that as you're pulling is pulling down on your thumb. So you rip calluses, you rip the skin off. So the thumb tape is just like, it's almost like a second skin. So it's just there and it's stretchy and, you know, it's nice. It's really good. So let's, <laughs> do you have more sport? Cause I want to go to Tokyo. Um, and just like who wins? So the the person who lifts the most weight, who who psychs yeah. everybody out and also lifts the most yeah. weight. Yeah. But if there's a tie, the right. tie goes to the first person who lifted that weight? Yes, but only since the last year. So it used to be from 2017 World Championships and previously, it was that the lightest body weight would win. So if someone had you know, weighed 81.0 and they were the heaviest in that weight class they could be. If they clean and jerk 200 kilos and then someone weighed 80.9, they could then hit 200 kilos and win. You know, it was a weird thing where you wanted to be as heavy as you could in your weight class, but then also be aware that someone might just equal you and beat you just because they weigh 500 grams less or 20 grams less. But now it's, the rule has now changed. So you actually have to outlift the person. So if someone, if you both snatch 160 kilos and someone clean jerks 200, you have to do 201 kilos. You have to actually lift more than them to be called the strongest person, which seems reasonable. Yeah, that does seem reasonable. But then do you end up in tie situations or because like, or is it like so luck if, of the draw in a sense because yeah, of the order that you get you, to weightlift in? So the order can kind of be changed by how you play your, how you play your cards like and, and literally cards. In America, they actually use cards. So they put a card in and say, I'm going to make this lift. And they take it out and say, no, I'm going to do that lift instead. So you can kind of decide, you can you can make yourself go before someone. But if, if someone hits 200 kilos and then you hit 200 kilos, they win because they did it first. And you're just stupid for not knowing the rules. You should have done 201 kilos. So that's how it is. So occasionally people do hit the same total and you have to wonder why because that no longer makes any difference. You have to beat them, but occasionally okay. it happens. 
Yeah. So it's really having a smart coach with you yeah. and also yeah. kn and knowing who's doing what, when, and how to switch that order up so it benefits you best. Right, yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh, it's kind of like chess where you have to like play out four or five moves in advance. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah, you really do. Like you, you know, when you, when you first go to the competition and it says what everybody's first attempts are going to be, nobody will actually take those first attempts. Like they're all bluffs. Everyone bluffs. Yeah, so it's, it's fun. Tokyo. Who do we look mm. for in Tokyo? Who are the powerhouse? First off, who are the powerhouse countries? China. China is the best country in the world at weightlifting. And they basically have been since 1998, pretty much that kind of time. Georgia at the moment is very good. Iran is good. The USA is is improving faster than any other country, which is exciting for you guys and and for me because I love watching the Americans lift. But then they're, they're not they're not at the top. But we, I mean, weightlifting recently went through a period where it almost got chucked out of the Olympics. For the last couple of years, we've held our breath because there were too many people being caught for doping. I mean, just to give an example of how bad it was, they did some retests from the 2012 Olympic Games in the 94 kilo class for the men. The person who took eighth is now currently in first because they've popped everyone one by one. The person moved up to first, retested them, done. Next person moves up, retests them, done. So it got really bad. So, yeah, so they've changed that. But that means that all of the, all of the kind of Soviet-era countries are now nowhere near as good because the drug testing is different. They're being watched by the IOC like, you know, like Hawks. So those guys, you know, Russia used to be, you know, they're classically the best weightlifters in the world. They're not good. Kazakhstan were, were the best for a few years. They're not good anymore. Ukraine has dropped out. You know, all of those kind of Soviet-era countries have dropped down. But generally, it's Iran, Georgia, and, and China. Ch China. China are the, the, the real people at the moment. They're very good. And is that true also for women? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Chinese women are just unbelievable. Yeah. They're amazing to watch. And in, in many ways, the, the women are almost more enjoyable to watch because some people might disagree with this, but I think they have, they have to have better technique, especially in certain lifts, because women hold more of their strength in the lower, po lower part of their body, so in their legs. So if you look at a woman, they tend to have like two-thirds of their strength in their legs and one-third upper body, whereas a man could be almost close to 50-50 or something like that. So in a, in a jerk where you get the bar from the shoulders to overhead, where a man can kind of use a little bit of just brute strength to get it up there, the women have like the most incredible sharp technique because you know they might be jerking 140 kilos, but they can only actually press with their arms 55 kilos or 60 kilos. So they have to have incredible technique. So when you watch the women, it's almost, it's almost more impressive when you see what they do. Yeah, the weights are a little bit less, but but the way they move is incredible. And when you watch the Chinese women, especially, it's like they just they're in a league of their own. Are there style differences between, say, there an are, American, actually. an American or a Chinese or an Eastern European? Yeah. yeah, there are. I mean, between the Chinese and American, and this is like you know people work well. I think people would all agree with this. They might take offense, but the style difference is that the Chinese moves better. I mean, that, that's just the truth. I mean, the the reason for that is. The Chinese have more registered coaches than the USA does athletes. It's a huge sport there, and and ultimately it's a numbers game. You know, they have millions of good weightlifters, and they all start from a, a young age. They get put into a sports school. There's you know a complete system for how they're going to be coached for the next twenty years of their life, and they get funneled through. People get dropped off, dropped off, and at the top you have twenty people who are all going to be world champions. Whereas in America, all of the pressure is for people who are good at sports to go to the NFL, the NBA, the, the, the NHL, whatever it is. And so really the people who become weightlifters are people who didn't make it or they're people who just happened to pick it up randomly when they were young and enjoyed it. Or they found out about CrossFit and then they switched, something like that. So it's, you know, the people who get into weightlifting in China are the best athletes in China. The people who get into weightlifting in America unlikely to have been the best weightlifters or unlikely to have been the best athletes in America. Um, they just happen to find weightlifting for odd, odd circumstances. But there are definitely stylistic differences. The, chi the Chinese are very smooth and fast lifters. You know, the, the Soviet countries tend to be a bit more snappy, a bit more loud, and their feet sort of smash on the floor like that. The Chinese are silent. 
And then America, because it's not standardized, because they don't have these huge programs that take you from nine years old and, and work you to becoming an Olympic champion, you get people who look completely different. You get clubs from around the country who don't communicate with each other because it's it's private. It's not a government. Well, it's not really a government-funded thing, hugely. There's a bit of money coming in through USA weightlifting, much more than there ever was. It's doing well, but... So you have all of these different clubs all around the country, all of these different shaped limb length people. And so the technique in America is very different from one athlete to the other. Whereas you look at the Chinese and it's just a blueprint. They all look, they all move. Basically, they all move the same. Yeah, it's quite impressive. Okay, speaking of loud, what, what is the yelling about? Well, it, I mean, it depends. There's, I would say there are two yellings. There's, there's yelling before you touch the barbell and then there's yelling during the lift. So the yelling during the lift, I mean, if you catch something heavy and you're standing it up, you are basically, you're tensing your stomach and you're pushing out as hard as you can, kind of out through your mouth. And sometimes noise just happens to break out and it's just a loud yell. And it just helps you stand up when you yell. It's a weird thing, but it does. The yelling before is more of a bit of just of a, a bit of a psych up. And it doesn't, it doesn't honestly happen a huge amount. It, in weightlifting, it's so technical that the best weightlifters don't make any noise. And often you see the louder the lifter before the lift. Not always, but there might be some relatively loose correlation between how loud you are before the lift and how good you are. An inverse correlation. Like the best weightlifters, they're very quiet. They walk on, they take a deep breath, they close their eyes, they visualize it. They walk very slowly to the bar, grab it, think for a few seconds, and then they do the lift. And often you see people run onto a platform really loudly, yelling, clapping, slapping their legs. They're probably not as good a lifter. Yeah. So that's why we yell. Helps. Helps you stand up. Okay. So specific athletes to watch in Tokyo. Who are you excited about? There is only one weightlifter in the world at the moment who is doing things that nobody has ever done in the sport of weightlifting. So the 1980s was like an incredible time for weightlifting. Well, it was an incredible time and it was a terrible time. It was incredible because all of the biggest lifts occurred then, but it was terrible because they only existed because there was no good drug testing. So we have always been lifting for the last 20 years at slightly lower numbers than the Soviet guys did, particularly the pinnacle was the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, Korea, which, and it was the same for most sports. I'm sure you guys have probably touched on that at some point. Like it was just the drugged up Olympics. It's the one where Ben Johnson famously beat Carl Lewis in the 100 meters and everything. Um, but there was one person right now called Lasha Talakadze. He's the super heavyweight from Georgia, from the men. He is snatching more weight than any human has ever snatched by, like, a big margin. He's, he's just unbelievably exciting. We've never seen anything like him. He's kind of shattering what people thought was humanly possible. You know, there are coaches who've been in the sport for 50 years, and they didn't think that anyone would ever be able to snatch 220 kilos. And and he's done it. And just every time he competes, he just adds a kilo. So he, he's very exciting. Um, do, do people think, are, are they astonished that he does it cleanly? Or is, is, there, there, is, there, always, is there always like this air of controversy about him because of the, the doping that's yeah. been historically involved with the sport? Yeah, so, you know, right now, they're doing much better in testing athletes, but I would never say that the that the Olympics, certainly weightlifting, but the Olympics in whole, I wouldn't say that it was clean. And in, in weightlifting, there's a good chance that the person who has the gold medal, there's a good chance that they're, they're taking something. You know, I don't know how, you know, state-sponsored drug program, we found out that's what Russia was doing for a long time. You know, like there are things that countries do that we might not know about. Um, so with him, yeah, I mean, when you look at it and you think the best athletes in the world with the best coaches, with the best drugs, were, not, were unable to snatch as much as this supposedly clean person, I, I think it's fair that the eyebrows are raised. But until, until you know, he fails a drug test, we don't know. But he did fail a drug test when he was like 19, and now he's 24. So it's not like he's always been clean. But if I had to put money on it, yeah, I, I wouldn't be voting that he was not on drugs honestly but it's kind of, it, the sad thing is it's it's how weightlifting is it's getting better it's how sport is i, mean, I don't know how much you touch on drugs on your podcast but oh a lot you do, yeah yeah it's drugs are 
as it once said in, in a film about drugs, drugs are American as apple pie. So like, and I don't think it's just, I mean, obviously in weightlifting, I don't think the Americans honestly take drugs, but in some sports they do, but around the world for weightlifting, drugs have been a huge part of the sport and they're becoming less, less and less and less, but it's only when people are doing things that have never been done before, particularly, you know, beating eras where there was lots of drugs. That's where things get a little bit, a little bit suspicious, I think. But even so, it's still kind of exciting to see. Right. I was going to say it's sad because you, you mm. see somebody do something that's never been done, but yeah. then because of the reputation the sport has, yeah. there's always as well, is that real? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. I have this weird dichotomy between being the fan who wants to just say, screw it, I want to see the biggest weight possible, and then also being... You know, I interview all of these American weightlifters who are training hard and they're, and, and they're not taking drugs. And it's like, it's it's not fair. Like, it's not fair at all. And, you know, if the guys who are taking drugs didn't, or if the Americans did, like, whatever equals the playing field, like, whether we make drugs legal or we find a way to actually ban them that works, which no one's ever been able to find, like, either one of them is fine. But, like, until we even the playing fields, it's not it's not a fair game at all. Um, so there's this part of me that thinks, for the sake of the sport, we have to condemn anyone who takes drugs. And then there's a part that says, yeah, but a two two twenty five snatch would be really cool to see. And I know that that second voice is stupid and and is is the incorrect voice. But it, it's that's you know I think everybody has that. Everyone wants to see Usain Bolt run nine point four nine seconds, and everyone wants to see someone throw a javelin one hundred and five meters, or you know what I mean? Like you always want to see more, but if it's if it's because of the drugs, we need to be okay and put a foot down and say no, we don't we don't agree with that. But it's it's weird. Let me ask you this: in terms of the competition in Tokyo, what do you think will be interesting, different, something we haven't seen before besides that one competitor doing crazy things? One of the exciting things, which if you're involved in the sport, you'll 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 know a bit more about, is because they're removing these weight classes, you will see weightlifters who have never competed against each other before suddenly thrown into the same competition so people who are previously world championships in two separate weight classes are going to be thrown into the same one so that's going to be fun to see i'm really excited to see some of the women in from the team usa there are a couple of women in the usa team who are poised to get medals at the olympics which is last year the super heavyweight sarah robles she got an olympic medal she was just unbelievable but other than her there, you know, a woman hasn't got a medal at the Olympics from the USA in, you know, basically two decades. So that would be really exciting to see. There's a, a lifter called Kate Nye, who I've had on the podcast two or three times. She's great, and she's I'm finding her. I mean, she's just incredibly exciting to watch. She was a gymnast just four years ago, and now she's basically the best weightlifter in the USA. She's just incredible. So I'm looking forward to seeing her. The Chinese, as always, and then. I mean, the weight class that might be the most exciting is the women's super heavyweight class. There were this this woman who was the best weightlifter of all time from Russia versus these two Chinese women who have suddenly become, well, one of them's been around for a while, but there's this 19-year-old girl who was, you know, poised to break all of the world records. So to see all of them kind of put on one platform together with an Olympic gold as the, as the bait, that's going to be very exciting. Yeah, it'll be a good time. Excellent. Well, Seb, thank you so much for telling us more about the sport. This has been really fascinating, and we really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, any, any time I get an opportunity to spread the word of weightlifting is, is good. Thank you so much, Seb. You can check Seb's workout at weightliftinghouse.com. On Instagram, they are weightlifting underscore house. On Twitter, they are at WL underscore house. And their Facebook page is Weightlifting House Official. And you can get their podcast on all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And their their podcast is a lot of fun to listen to. I will say that. I've learned a lot. Yes, very much. Not that I'll be trying weightlifting again. Because <laughs> that was the week where I bashed my nose. So it was a timely interview. It was. It was very funny because I'm sitting there going, look at the bruise I have on my nose, Seb. This is what your sport did to me. So have you been measuring your femur? Not yet, but I have been still been doing my sumo squats. And I think of Seb often when I do them because I think maybe I could be a better weightlifter. I'm getting better at them, but I don't think I could touch my butt to the floor yet.
I want to see it when you do. All right. We'd like to give a big shout out to listener Anthony for suggesting the folks at Weightlifting House to us. And if you know of a possible guest for our show, please drop us a line at oldinfever at gmail.com. Before we get on to the rest of the show, we'd like to take a second and invite you to join our Facebook group and our Patreon page. Our Facebook group has some great discussions going on about the Olympics and all Olympic things. And right now there's a huge discussion on whether Queensland, Australia will be hosting the 2032 Olympics because that has been in the news a little bit this summer, but over the last few days, it's really taken on a life of its own. So we are having a great discussion there and we would love you to join us. Also, we appreciate our Patreon patrons, their financial contributions. They help keep this show alive. If you are interested in contributing, you can go to patreon.com slash olimfever. And that's an ongoing contribution. And there are rewards for different levels, including some bonus audio. And if you'd rather not make an ongoing contribution at our website, olimfever.com, we do have a PayPal donation button as well. So if you love the show and like to see our efforts continue, please consider uh, donating some money. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. Ski jumper Sarah Hendrickson is returning to competition this season. She took a year off last season, and so now she's back in Europe. Because it's, I can't believe winter competitions are already starting up. They're getting ready. She posted a very funny video on Instagram about she forgot how to pack all her stuff. <laughs> So she was struggling to pack the suits and the gear because she had previously posted a video about how efficient she was with packing. Oh, yeah. You get get that rhythm. Her training had lapsed in packing for ski jumping. So good luck to her. That's right. We'll be following you this season, Sarah. And also the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant have been flying across the world and have landed in Kazakhstan this week for the 2019 World Championships in Wrestling. All right, moving on to Tokyo 2020 news. There is outrage in the equestrian world over some changes to the structure of the competition. So according to Inside the Games, uh, the organizing committee wants to shrink teams by one rider so that they can have more teams from more countries. So instead of four riders in the team event where the per- where the team's lowest score gets dropped you have three riders where all the scores count right which so is which change. is interesting and so people are upset about that yeah so 2008 gold medalist from Canada Eric Lamaze is complaining and saying that somebody's going to get hurt and somebody's going to make a fool of themselves that if you're adding all these countries that their riders are not going to be up to olympic standards Hmm. And he is calling for a boycott from not of countries, but specifically from the sport of Tokyo, uh, unless they reverse the change. Because I I was just curious, like if they have if they have eight teams and they go like how many teams are they taking away from to add how many more teams? So if you have 12, if you had 12 teams and you four, so you can add four, you can add four more teams. Right. How much is that really going to kill you? You're talking. Canada, UK, Australia, New US, Zealand, US, Japan, Japan, France, Germany, Austria probably. Yeah. I maybe wouldn't be surprised. S- Belgium. Belgium, maybe the Spanish? Yeah. Spanish are big horsemen. So that's 12 and then maybe uh, Ireland. Ireland's big. Oh yeah, don't forget Ireland. Then uh there's also on this big list of people who have three spots there's also brazil has nine oh yeah qualified. brazil of course i was about to say mexico mexico's in there they've got three netherlands yeah there's a lot of i think there i think eric lamaze needs to use his name and take some deep breaths and calm down we shall see how that goes it's always interesting when somebody says boycott my ears perk up and i start getting upset yeah so I don't even need to know what it's about, but please, no, no. Right. And then finally, the applications for the torch relay have closed. And the according to uh, com, they said there were 16,910 applicants for 165 spots. So those lucky people who get to carry the torch 
through this torch relay application. Man. Nice. But this goes again to this is a very oversubscribed Olympics for everything. Right. The enthusiasm. tickets, and now the torch relay. The enthusiasm in Tokyo is huge, which is great. Exactly. And on an enthusiastic note, I think we should just close it out and call it a day. Hope they want your pins. That's right. They will. They will. I'm enthusiastic about my pins. Got some good ones. I know. On that note, we will call it a show for this week, and we will catch you back here next week with more Olympic stories. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Drugs are American as apple pie.